I'm Carrie Miller, and this is my Friday book show, Big Books and Bold Ideas, where readers meet writers. When women were painted into scenes from America's Old West, and that was rare, they were often idealized images of porcelain-skinned, smiling, Madonna-like figures seated in pristine covered wagons. Indeed, there's a whole genre of Madonna of the Prairie paintings, including W.H.D. Kerner's, that reach back to the Renaissance and the Virgin Mary for inspiration. But as our guest writes in her new book, women's experiences are the very core of any true understanding of the reality of the American West, which is not so much a story about gunslingers and cowboys, but a story about one of the largest and most tumultuous mass migrations in history. Today, a conversation about the women who went west and the women who were already there. Katie Hickman's new book is titled Brave Hearted, The Women of the American West, and she joins us from London. And Katie, welcome. It's good to have you on the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. I spend a lot of time in the American West. I've noticed how stubbornly persistent those idealized images of women in the West are. And I'm sure as you were doing the research for this, you saw a lot of that. Tell me why that is so persistent. That is such a good question. And, you know, the whole of my book is an answer to that question, really. I think the the, I think, you know, movies have a huge amount to do with it. You know, the Im- the imagery that we all grew up with or that I certainly grew up with, you know, from not, not just from movies, but from television programs, you know, it's, it's so powerful. You know, I grew up watching Westerns. I'm sure mm-hmm. most of your listeners grew up watching Westerns. And it, there right. is still there is still kind of, you know, like modern versions of, of Western uh, films made made today and many television programs as well. And all of them are, you know, they are it, they're fictitious, they're fantasy, they're feeding certain certain fantasies, they're feeding certain kind of political um, political ideas about, uh, you know, who the West should belong to, and I think it's it. They are very powerful. That that imagery is very powerful. So it's and and it's really difficult to make people change their minds about things. Really, really hard. People don't. People, you know, people want to remain with their with this imagery in their in their minds, and it's difficult to dislodge. Yeah, that, that's a good point. I mean, there is this mythology that is reinforced by what you're what you're saying about these images that you know there's not a smudge of trail dust on no. the women's dresses <laughs> you see no sign of how exhausting and heartbreaking making a life on the frontier was and we know it was right because we have yes. original sources we have diaries how much of that did yes. you read to, to prepare for oh I, I a huge amount i mean one of the things that was so fascinating to me when I started to do the research for this is is discovering just how well documented it is from the point of view of women and that's really unusual you know I spent an entire writing lifetime trying to un trying to delve into you know women's stories and women's history the kind of you know the 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 women's versions of things that have got uh 
you know, have been have been hidden hidden away for some reason because people thought that women weren't important enough that their version of what happened uh, in history, you know, didn't have the same weight as that of men. But on the on these westward migrations, it, it's really extraordinary. There are something like, I think it's around about three thousand known diaries and uh, you know memoirs written on these westward on the westward trails, of which. Almost a third are by women, mm. and that is an incredibly yeah. high yeah. proportion. You know, and th- these were not only middle-class women who were high, well-educated, who you would expect to leave by, uh, behind a written record. You know, these were women who were quite newly literate, or maybe even only a bit, you know, literate. I, I won't call them sub-literate, but you know, one of the most um, striking. Um, memoirs that I include in the book is by a, a woman who I love called Ketera Belknap. And mm-hmm. this woman was mm-hmm. um, had a, kept a diary from the age of about 15 or, until she died. And she was one of the early, you know, the early sort of pioneering, you know, in the early pioneering uh, expeditions to leave the Missouri frontier. And she has really idiosyncratic spelling. Her, her punctuation is almost non-existent. It's like this stream of consciousness. And she wrote very unselfconsciously, as I imagine she might have spoken. And so, although it's not, you know, beautifully formed, you know, English, it is incredibly vivid. And she, descri- she describes, you know, what it took to pack up the wagons and all the kind of minutiae of what it took to prepare for these incredibly tough journeys, um, you know, in, in this beautiful detail. And at the time, people might have thought that, oh, well, that's just women's stuff. We don't want to know. You know, we, we don't need to know how, the, how you actually made the covers for your wagon. But today, you know, 150 years later, it's fascinating to know that this woman, not only did she weave the cloth to make the cover for her wagon, but she spun the flax herself to make <laughs> the <incredible>. thread. <laughs> and she's somebody who had knew the value of a, of a white tablecloth. She was very house proud and she was very proud that her, you know, when she stopped for the midday meal to give her husband his food and her little son his food, she had a clean white cloth. But that was written on the first day when she left. You know, six months later, that cloth sure as goodness me would not have been clean it would have been it would not have been white by the time she got to the other end uh, so it's exactly as you say it was a much dirtier uh, dirtier less you know we have a kind of romantic romantic idea the kind of you know little house on the prairie idea of of, of, of what of what it might have been like but it, it was a lot tougher than that I've opened the book um, to this part where is it Keturah? Um, I think so. About, yes, I yeah. think so. I, yeah, I'm not entirely sure, but I think that's how I pronounce it. Yes, she writes about the the day of departure, and I, I thought I would just read a little paragraph here. Now we were fairly on the road. It's one o'clock. We got started at ten. We'll stop for an hour and eat lunch and let the oxen chew their cuds. We have just got out of the neighborhood. The friends that came apiece with us have turned back, and we will travel on. Jesse and I have had a good nap and a good lunch, and now we will ride some more. I mean, it all just sounds so simple, but it's not. Yes. Um, <laughs> evening, we come to water and grass and plenty of wood. What hinders us from camping here 
Everyone seems hungry, and we make fires and soon have supper fit for a king. I will make the first call, and am the only one that has a table, and it has a clean white cloth on. There things you are going to get. You got it. <laughs> things are going to get very complicated for them. Will you talk a little yes. bit about why? What happens to that family? Well, on this particular journey, um, it was oh gosh, um, I I think it was eight. 1947. Sorry, I've just had recovering from COVID, so my brain is a little Mm. bit woolly, and the dates are not quite as sharp in my brain as they normally are. So they were making, this was very early in the migration, which started in about 1840, the very, very first, very few people to to, to make this um, incredible journey. So it was kind of, had kind of got going, but but it was still early days in 1847, and that the year prior to that, 1846, was a year when a terrible catastrophe from the point of view of the white Americans going west happened in that um, uh, a, a missionary family the, the, known as the Whitmans, and your, many of your readers might know this story already, that there was a, a missionary, uh, they were um, Presbyterian missionaries, Marcus and Narcissa Whitman. And Narcissa Whitman had been the first one of the first two white women ever to make the overland journey from the Missouri River to Oregon. So she was the kind of groundbreaking, extraordinary journey that she made with another woman called Eliza Spaulding. They'd set up a mission amongst the Cayuse indigenous people, and it had all gone very badly wrong. This is, I'm making a very short version of a very long Mm. and complex story. And the family, Mm. Narcissa and her husband, Marcus, and a number of their... Uh, foster children had been massacred by the Cayuse people. So this, from the point of view of the white emigrants, was a was a very very alarming uh, thing to have happened. Uh, and the news about this massacre went back east, kind of you know, in in a wave along the emigrant trails. And and uh, Ketera Belknap's um, company of people was were among those who heard heard the news, were the, among the first to hear the news when they were already en route. The news, the, uh, there were, there was a party of, um, of militia from Oregon who were galloping back to the east to try to get, you know, troops to try to get protection for themselves because they were so, everyone was completely freaked out by the idea that these Native Americans were, you know, were turning on them. Of course, it's a much more complex uh, story than that. And they had good you know they had their good reasons you could say for 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 what happened but the point is that Ketera and her family were among those who first heard this story and it caused and she describes the the consternation that it caused amongst the emigrants and many of them at that point wanted to you know turn their wagons back east and go home again because obviously you know it was they didn't, none of them really knew what they were getting into. They, they, it was quite a well-worn trail by that stage, but uh, it, was still, it was still in the early days. And so you know, I just think of it as being a bit like if some of us had decided to uh, go to the moon you know, or go to Mars. You know, it was a really, really unknown <laughs> quantity. And you out. didn't, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you didn't quite know what you were going to get. So it required an enormous amount of... Well, resilience and a certain amount of, um, 
yeah, courage to, to, to stick to your guns, so to speak, and to, and to keep going. And a lot of the people in that year actually turned around and went back. They had a, they had an exp- rather a wonderful expression for it, or a rather poetic expression for something that r- wasn't really very poetic. It was called seeing the elephant. And mm. seeing the elephant meant that you had a, you suddenly, suddenly became aware of the absolutely enormous, perhaps insurmountable thing that you had taken on and it was more than your your courage could 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 really bear and so you turned around and went home and that, that there are no figures that it's it's difficult in, if not impossible to know how many people turned around and went back again but it's certain that a quite a large number did but of course most didn't most just carried on and uh, took their chances I'm Kerry Miller. You're listening to my Friday book show, and I'm in conversation with with uh, Katie Hickman. I almost said Narcissa Whitman. She's on my mind, and <laughs> I want to talk to her. Uh, talk about her, Katie. Um, yeah. Katie Hickman is with us, and we're talking about her new book about the women who went west, who went to the frontier, who made those incredibly long, difficult, savage journeys in some ways, and endured, and who settled. And the stories uh, that about their endurance and their experience that were often left out of the mythology about the settling of the West. Katie's book is called Brave Hearted, The Women of the American West. Katie, I, I don't want to skip over Narcissa Whitman too quickly, particularly okay. because of their interaction with the Cayuse people. The Cayuse, yes. if I if I have read your book right, begged them to leave the Oregon territories, to, to get off their land. And Narcissa Whitman and her husband ignored that. Talk yes. a little bit about the interaction with the native peoples that these settlers encountered. Okay. Well, Narcissa Whitman is, I've thought a lot about this woman because she's such a, She's such a tragic figure, really. You know, she, she, as I was saying earlier, she was one of the first two white women ever to even attempt this journey, which was considered to be impossible for a woman. And she was a missionary. They went to what is now Oregon. Then in those days, it was known as Oregon country. It was not part of the United States. It was a foreign, foreign country, you know, and it was, it was, lived in by many, many different uh, Native American tribes, including the Cayuse, amongst whom Narcissa and her husband eventually set up their mission. And it's worth prefacing all this by saying that the Cayuse initially were very keen for the mm-hmm. to have the Whitmans there. The Whitmans didn't kind of impose themselves on the Cayuse in any way. In fact, they went to some lengths to make sure that their presence was going to be a welcome one. And it was at the start. So this was in 1836, so 10 years prior to the to the massacre. Uh, and I think it was just really based on a huge cultural misunderstanding. You know, the, the Whitmans be- believed that they were going to spread the word of God and to convert the Cayuse to Christianity, to a form, you know, a, a white form of, Chris- of, of, you know, a belief system. The Cayuse, I, I'm pretty sure had no idea that that's what was coming their way and they regarded the Whitmans as being like their own medicine men. They regarded them as having this, you know, spiritual powers and so they thought it would be a good thing for their for their tribe if these people came among them. So there was a huge 
misunderstanding at the very heart of the Whitmans uh, being there. It was not a success from the outset. It wasn't a success. You know, it was an I used to feel much more critical of, of Narcissa than I did by the time I ended my book because, you know, there was a woman who had no idea what she was getting into. None of the men who were part of the mission board who sent the Whitmans there even considered what it might be like for a, 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 a lone white woman. There was one other white woman, but they were making a mission 100 miles away. So Narcissa was totally on her own. No training, absolutely nothing to prepare her. And it didn't go well. And eventually, the I think the, what really went wrong, well, there were two things that went wrong. First of all, the Whitmans, mostly Marcus Whitman, decided that to convert the Cayuse wasn't really going to work. They, they, I don't think they made a single conversion in all their time there. So instead, he began to help give aid to other white Americans and there were also a number of um, black Americans as well Native, um, sorry, African Americans who went, but in much smaller numbers but anyway, to to Americans and other emigrants, he was going to give aid to them and start a white society, you know, impose a colonial, you know settlement on top of the Cayuse and sort of, you know, convert them from the top down, so to speak and the Cayuse noticed this and, um, and you know, they couldn't fail to notice. You know, the Whitmans were on their tribal lands that no one had really given them permission to, to, to be on. So it was very complex. But the thing that really triggered the, the difficulties was that the emigrants brought in disease, diseases with them that the, that the Native Americans had no resistance to. And in particular... In 1846, there was a huge measles epidemic brought mm. in by the emigrants. And many, many, many emigrants died. And huge numbers of Cayuse died, including almost all their children. So it was a disaster for these Cayuse people. They, had, You know, Marcus Whitman, who was a medical doctor, had nothing at his disposal to help them at all. And the Cayuse begged the Whitmans to leave uh, because they could... You know, for all these different reasons, it was not working out for them. In fact, it was destroying their tribe. And so when a small number of them, I think it was about a, fi a group of about five or six renegades, took action against them, and it was a bloody, horrible massacre. And Narcissa Whitman was particularly hated because they, the Cayuse thought she was proud and, uh, you know, and they hated her. Uh, and and it was a it was a terrible thing that happened. But the retribution taken by the emigrants on the, on the whole of the Cayuse tribe was was an awful thing. You know, they they a militia was gathered together from people who were already in Oregon, and they just went amongst the tribal people and uh, and massacred uh, many many more of them than had been massacred at the at the Whitman mission. And you know, it was a <laughs> One of, I don't think it was the first massacre, but it was one of the first, you know, significant massacres in a in a in a, in, a, in a history that became, you know, characterised by by um, that sort of chronology, if you like, you know, mm. a few white mm. people being killed and then the white people taking taking a revenge on the tribes people and just going in and killing many many more of them. So. Any friendly relations between the indigenous population and the white settlers was really poisoned uh, by this uh, by this event, and uh, 
it was a great tragedy for all concerned, I think, particularly for the Cayuse. We mentioned that you had diaries and journals and accounts from uh, many, many more than I think I would have expected of the women who went west. But you also write about how important the Native women's testimonies were. Where did you find them? Oh, gosh. Well, with, I mean, I have to say that they, it's the thing that I'm, was most excited to find during my um, during my researches. It was relatively easy to find the accounts by white women, a little bit less easy to find accounts by African American, you know, black black Americans who went. Although I do have a number of really very striking stories from those experiences as well. But the Native American. That there are very few source, Native American sources by women, written written sources by women. But the ones that I did find that do exist are particularly, uh, you know, just very very important. Because of course, if you're trying to give what I what I'm trying to do in the book is to get away from the idea of you know, like the stereotype version of the West that we that we all have, that I certainly had when I um when I first started researching, which is, you know, women in sun what you were mentioning in your introduction. The kind of little house on the prairie idea, women in sunbonnets with perfectly starched <laughs> dresses <laughs> and, and shoes, you know, that aren't worn to shreds on their feet. But who was what was the experience of the of the people who were already there, of which there were, you know, maybe a quarter of a million Native Americans in living in maybe as many as 300 different tribes in this huge area, roughly mm-hmm. speaking from the Missouri-Mississippi borderlands all the way over to the uh, Pacific. You know, that was the, the vast area that was kind of conquered by this um, this huge migration. And so these few accounts are very, very valuable and they are, they're really remarkable. They, the, you know, like I say, I maybe there's maybe three or four of them, as opposed to many hundreds of ones by the the, the emigrants going west. But um, they're very, very speaking, indeed, and and rather and rather beautifully written. And you know, a measure. So this is this is a measure of how how hard it is to to find those accounts from you know what what was the experience of people who were having to bear the brunt of this mm-hmm. emigration and uh you know make way for these white people coming their way which at the beginning they were quite prepared to do it all went very badly wrong later on but at the beginning you know some of the tribes people welcomed the whites you know they wanted to trade with the, they saw them as a trading opportunity and they were secure in the knowledge that they were kind of in control of those lands um but for but for example there is a, a one of the major sources that i have that i i i have this book at home actually I, it's a wonderful book but this woman called josephine wagoner and josephine wagoner was a, a biracial woman she was her mother was a hunk papa a lakota hunk papa and her father was irish american so she was a biracial woman so she could read and write in uh, in English, but grew up really um, more like a, a hunk papa tribeswoman because of the influence of her mother and her father died quite young. And this woman spent about 30 years of her life, so many decades of her life. She died in 
in the in the 1940s sometimes um collecting together making a conscious decision that if she if if people didn't if she didn't record the stories of her people and her mother's people before they died the elders of the, the tribal elders before they died it would only be the white person's version of history that would prevail and so she dedicated her life to doing an enormous number of interviews often i have to say with men uh but in in amongst those interviews with the tribal leaders are and her own experiences of what it was like growing up in in powder river country so the sort of lakota lakota heartland what it was like to be a child growing up you know before all the all her people were moved onto reservations you know just the sort of beginnings of the beginnings of war and this astonishing astonishing amount of work that she did i think this book which was published only 70 years after Josephine Wagoner died so mm-hmm. all this stuff was in mm-hmm. notebooks uh you know and no publisher would take it on and as an amazing scholar shout out to an amazing woman called Emily Levine uh, an independent scholar who got all these literally written you know quite kind of handwritten notebooks and has made this extraordinary book which is a very very large book it's some i think it must be getting on for seven or eight hundred pages long i mean it's absolutely huge it could really have been done in several several volumes uh, and it's an amazing it's an amazing record she just managed to write, get it all down on on the, on the page you know the, of course the native american history it's not that they don't have a way of recording history but mostly it was an oral oral form and so of course once people died then that's that was you know that was it was very easy to lose it and Josephine Wagner realized that and uh, and wrote it down and um and she has this beautiful way of writing you know this very poetic um sensibility so when she writes about her childhood and what that was like uh and of course a lot of it towards the end is is very sad um because this was after um uh you know Custer's last stand all those things i'm mm. sure you everyone learn, learns about in their in their history you know when when it was really the when it was really the the end of the of her people being able to roam freely and live freely um it's a very tragic story as well but she does have this very very beautiful way of writing it all down and it's an extraordinary document so I was very, I felt very lucky. If I had written this book 10 years earlier, I wouldn't have had access to it. And it was oh, only because wow. I wrote it when I did that I was able to, to use these extraordinary records. Um, it, if you've just joined the conversation, um, Katie Hickman is with us today. And we're talking about her new book, Bravehearted, The Women of the American West. She's described... Um, finding, turning to the journals and the diaries and the accounts of women who went west, largely obscured in the history that we learn about the settlement of the west. And right now we're talking about how important the testimonies of the native peoples, the native women who were there as the settlers pushed into their territorial lands. Katie, um, I want to mention Sarah Winnemucca, too, Oh, yes, Um, yes. She was a a member of the Northern Paiute tribe, and she wrote a book called Life Among the Paiutes, Their Wrongs and Claims 
that was published in 1883. Was that valuable to you? Were you able to get yes. your hands on a copy? Yes, no, it, it absolutely was. And, and, and I'm so glad you've mentioned her because she was the first, um, that was the first Native American, you know, woman, female Native American source that I was able to find uh, mm. because her book was published so much earlier than the others. And uh, she is thought to have been, her book is thought to have been the first, the very first, you know, autobiography written by a Native American woman, certainly one that is written in a, uh, in you know in a, in in a book form you know as we would recognise an autobiography and 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 hers is is a very extraordinary story so her as you said her her people were the northern Paiute so they um, came from an area in the sort of Humboldt uh, on the Humboldt kind of on the eastern side of the Sierra of the Sierra Nevada um, mountains. So it, when mm-hmm. people were following the California Trail, they went right through the middle of the of this of the, of, of her people's uh, land. Um, and her grandfather was not he wasn't a tribal chieftain or anything like that, but he was a he was certainly he was a very um, prominent a leader within her within her people's you know within her tribe and it, he was and she describes you know how when he saw these white people coming for the very first time and these were the very possibly the very very early trips so the very early um emigrants who were coming in the early 1840s possibly even the Donna Reed party who that we I'm sure mm, uh, you know this is one right. of the more one of the better known uh you know tragic stories of the of the Westwood Trail um and her grandfather she describes how how overjoyed her grandfather was when he saw these first saw these white people coming because in the north in the um sort of uh creation story of the northern Paiute there is a there is a, a, a mythical a mythical story about that the origins of the people that there were at the beginning of the world there were white people and there were brown people you know but like her like her own and they quarreled and there was a separation the gods made them separate so so but there was always the thought that at some point in the future in the sort of you know distant distant you know future the white brothers would be reunited with the with the brown brothers again with the tribal with the tribal brothers and so when her grandfather saw these white people coming along he'd never none, none of them had ever seen white people before they'd never seen anything anything quite like this group of emigrants he was completely overjoyed and wanted to wanted to you know approach them and welcome them and run up to them and uh you know make kind of you know not make friends with them exactly but to but to wel- welcome them he and his his motives were friendly ones but of course the white people coming coming along saw a group of native uh, native americans and were terrified of them because mm-hmm. everyone was everyone expected that any native american the tribes person they met along the way w- meant them harm and so, you know, they fired on them and there were a, a number of, you know, bloody incidents in which the Paiute were, were killed. And so they very quickly learned to uh, distrust white people coming along. And Sarah tells this story, a re- very, very striking story that when, in fact, it was her earliest memory. So when she was a little girl, maybe about four, four years old, three or four years old, a, a, 
in the yearly emigration, there was a, a group of white people coming along, and so her people had learnt by this stage that they needed to run for their lives. They, they, it was no good trying to um, approach or, or be friendly. Uh, and so they, they ran away as fast as they could. But she was too little to run. And her mother, and uh, it was her and a cousin of hers who the same age, and so her mother and her aunt, in their desperation to keep their children, um, you know, keep them safe dug a hole in the ground and they buried Sarah and her cousin buried them alive literally up to their neck in the ground so these two little children or the the only thing that was out of the out of the ground was their heads and they covered their heads with sagebrush and just left them in the in the middle of the That's in the middle of the, of, the, of the land absolutely and she describes Gosh. her complete terror because of course being that age she didn't really understand what was happening to her she just knew she couldn't move and her mother had ran mm. away and she was left there all throughout the long hot day with the sun beating down and eventually after the sun went down her mother and the and her aunt came came back and dug them back out of the of the ground but that that was the length that they had to go to in order to protect their children so you know it was a measure of um it was a measure of the of the real cultural difficulties and misunderstandings and frankly brutality from the from the white settlers and she she sarah tells the story of how the following year she because they she was not quite certain of her own uh, age or exactly what year she was born but she thinks that the the year after that was the year when the Donna Reed party came along and of course they were the ones who ran out of uh, all their all their supplies were very very late on in the day uh, and eventually got stuck not being able to cross the mountains because the winter came early and it snowed and they were stuck in the mountains and she said you know we we saw these people and we would have been able to help them if we'd wow. if we hadn't been so afraid um they realized what was going to happen to them you have a um uh, journal entry here from Sarah's first experience with seeing the inside of a settler house that I thought yes. was just uh, yes. I thought we could share that with listeners here because you write um, oh what pretty things met my eyes she recalled I was looking round the room and I saw beautiful white cups and every beautiful thing on something high and long and around it some things that were red I said to my sister, do you know what those are for? For she had been to the house before with my brothers. She said, that high thing is what they use when eating, and the white cups are what they drink hot water from, and the red things you see is what they sit upon when they're eating. She watched in amazement as the white family all came and sat around that high thing, as I called it. That was the table. It was all very strange to me, and they were drinking the hot water as they ate. Later, she and her brothers were all invited to eat at the same high thing. I was quiet, but I did not eat much, she recalled. I tasted the black hot water. I did not like it. It was coffee that we called hot water. So it sounds like eventually she has quite a bit of experience with the white settlers. Is, is that right? Yes, Yes, she did. I mean, her experiences were 
were more benign than those of the rest of her family who had very bad experiences with white settlers. But Sarah's were quite good. And she she um, tells a story of a white, uh, a white, the first, so she was started off being very, very afraid of the white people. You know, this experience of being buried in the ground. And then also there was a Paiute um, legend about, uh, you know, that's kind of like the bo- bo- boogeyman, the bogeyman mm. was, was mm-hmm. an owl with blue eyes. And of course, the settlers all had blue eyes and the men had a lot of facial hair. So she thought that they were like owls <laughs> and she thought they were going to eat her, you know, the way children mm-hmm. get things muddled up. So, but then she had an experience with one white woman settler who she she sarah got um uh, uh, in fact it transpired that it was it was actually poison ivy so she had a re- very bad reaction to poison ivy and her face had swollen up so she couldn't see out of her eyes and she had a sort of allergic reaction to it but every day this white woman came to where she <clears throat> where she was and brought her food and brought her Bought her things, and this white woman had had a child, a, a little girl who the same age as Sarah, who had died on the trail, and so obviously her her heart was very sore, and she saw this little um, this little northern Paiute child, and she wanted to help her, and so Sarah, you know, recognised that this woman, you know, the kindness of this woman, and uh, you know, coming every day to to help her and bring her bring her you know, bring her things to eat. Um, and so that so she had a very mixed experience. And actually, Sarah went on to, to marry um, a white man. In fact, she had two, two husbands who were white American husbands. And she went on, she was obviously a very clever young woman, and she learnt languages very easily. So she learnt to speak English very, very well and very fluently. And she became an interpreter for the... Um, U.S. Army later on later on in life, so she had a, a more varied experience, and a, and and, a, and uh, you know her, her her good her good experiences were were good ones, mm. as well as the as well as the bad ones that her that her family experienced. Her her, her sister was some. Uh, you know, Native American young women, especially if they were pretty, were were very vulnerable to attack by. Um, unscrupulous white men because of course there were a lot more men on the uh, on the trails in the early days than there were women and you know that always that always brings difficulties with it but um you know Sarah was very you know it's a, it's a rather amazing book that she wrote because it's very even it's very even-handed you know it's not uh you know she if she had a good experience with white people she will tell it and she will tell it generously so she will give people their due um and that's you know it's a remarkable thing when you think what happened what you know that what happened to her people uh yeah. it's it's a it's a it's a i think that even handedness is very is all the more remarkable put it like that i'm carrie miller you're listening to big books and bold ideas my friday book show it's where readers meet writers and katie hickman is with us today. Um, we're talking about her new book, Bravehearted, The Women of the American West. She's joining us from London. Um, while you've alluded to the decimation of the Native people, I, I have to tell you that this statistic that you mentioned, and I think it's late in the book, just was shocking to me. You say that by 1890, 
no native people in the West were living freely on their own land. I believe you know, that's. I believe that's true. Uh, yes. I mean, I think it is. It is extraordinary. Yeah. It. It. It is. It is extraordinary. And all the more so because of how quick it was. Mm-hmm. You know, the westward migrations began in 1840. So in 1840, there was, well, apart from a, few, a handful of missionaries who went west before that, uh, I mean, I'm talking about women as well as men, um, uh, the first non-missionary family was in 1880, one family who left and went to Oregon in 1841 it was a group of a hundred people in 1842 it was a group of 200 people so they all had to leave at the same time in about april they would leave the missouri river to 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 cross over the prairies and the and the and the and the rocky mountains and go either to to oregon or or down you know further south to california um and they traveled in groups and the and and it just it it increased exponentially. So 1843, it was a 1,000 people. And when gold was discovered in California in 1848, the following year, 1849, it was 30,000 people who left. You know, that, wow. that's a huge jump. The year after that, it was 50,000 mm. people who left to go mm. to California. So... Really, it was, a, it was a kind of numbers game. By you know, at the end, that that the Native Americans were overwhelmed by the n- sheer numbers of people who were who were going. And there's an extraordinary description I came across, which is you know the, the big, very beginning in the early 1840s. There were no you know people barely knew what the these routes were rather ancient. They were ancient routes that the Native Americans were very familiar with, but of course. The whites weren't familiar with it at all, so they got lost. They didn't know how long it would take. It was probably about a six-month journey. People thought it was going to take much less, so they took either took two. Typically, they would either take too little food and starve to death along the way, or they would try to take far too much mm-hmm. with them, and then their oxen would just get too exhausted after a few months traveling and not much, you know, not much um, food. Uh, and they'd have to jettison everything by the side of the road. So going back to what you were saying about, you know, the the, the kind of hardship of it, the kind of dirt of it, but also the, these trails after 10, 15 years were completely strewn with litter. You know, hmm. so it wasn't just, uh, you know, it, was, it wasn't just that people uh, would use, you know, there, obviously the sanitary, there was no sanitation other than ravines and rivers and people used all used the same places and these were became very very insanitary very quickly and there are horrible descriptions of the you know the awful stench of the along along the way but also extraordinary things jettisoned by the way so people people would take with them you know complete works of Shakespeare you know you thought you were going for the rest of your life you wanted to take some home comforts with you so the complete works of Shakespeare oh no you can't take that so there would be a you know gothic bookcase with the complete works of Shakespeare just sitting in the middle of the of the prairie there's a very funny description by um one of my Native American sources a wonderful woman called um uh, Sarah Bethel, Sarah um, Bordeaux, Susan Bordeaux, whose father, who again Bethel-Yun, she was a biracial, right? Le, Be, Bordeaux Bethelune, uh, and her fa- her father was um, 
uh, an American French American fur trader, and her mother was a was a Lakota was a I forget what 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 which part of anyway was a was a Lakota um, woman. So she grew up round Fort Laramie, which was on the main you know the main kind of emigrant route before it split to go to Oregon and California. And and she describes how the the families round there had incredibly well. Um, you know, well um, furnished houses because they pick up all this furniture that had been just, you know, jettisoned by the side of the road. You know, beautiful sideboards and carved bookcases and, and uh, clothing, you know, right? Uh, yeah, mm. uh, amazing, amazing, much, much kind of grander things than you would ever expect to get uh, in just a little little way station or little ranches along that way. I, I found your account of Catherine Hahn, who was newly married in Iowa. I mean, the naivete, Katie, and yes. the idealism. I, I thought, let, let's talk a little bit about uh, where they leave from. She and her husband are newly married, and they think this is going to be a great honeymoon trip. And yes. so they load up <laughs> the wagons. They have been swept by gold fever. Um, yes. Describe describe how this this young couple sets out, and then I'll read a couple of the paragraphs from yes. that part. Oh, well, that well, I I I I love this description. So Catherine <laughs> Horn was was more um, she was more middle. She was very very you know middle class people. Well, people I thought before I started the research that that the, the kind of people who would who would just go on the trails would be poor people who didn't have much back home. But this is absolutely not the case uh, at all. It was First of all, it was quite expensive to go. But secondly, it was people of absolutely all, you know, all classes, all backgrounds who ended up going, particularly during the gold rush. So Catherine Horn was one such. And people tended to go because they wanted, you know, free or very cheap land or they were inspired by, you know, they thought they were going to get rich quick because of all the various, not just the gold rush, but the various different sort of mineral, you know, mineral rushes, like the Comstock load, the silver load found in Virginia City. There were a whole a whole number of them. But um, Catherine Horn and her, and her husband, they went, it was a honeymoon trip. They thought they'd just got married and they thought, oh, <laughs> Uh, oh, I, this would be a great trip to do. And there was also an element of it being a uh, health cure. This is the other thing that was so mm. extraordinary. Catherine Horn's sister had died of consumption the year before. And so the family doctor had recommended that she should take, you know, a sea trip, which would be good for her, you know, good for her health. But it was not going to be possible to take a sea trip. So because you just got married, they thought, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of, you know, kill two birds with one stone. We'll go on our honeymoon trip and we'll, we'll go to the, we'll go to California. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> and so she, um, she has this wonderful description of all the things that she took with her, which I believe you're going to read a little passage yeah. from. And it includes, maybe you part. should read it, maybe you should read it now, because it was so totally inappropriate, the things she thought of taking with her. In addition, and this is from Katie's book, Bravehearted, um, in addition to four servants, a cook and three teamsters, their outfit consisted of four wagons, one of these was given over entirely to barrels of alcohol for their consumption on the journey, while two others were loaded up with merchandise, which they fondly hoped to sell at fabulous prices when they arrived at the other end. 
The theory of this was good, Catherine recalled, but the practice, well, we never got the goods across the first mountain. As was so often the case, these entirely superfluous wares would be abandoned beside the trail for those who came after them to plunder at their will. The alcohol they buried in the ground, quote, lest the Indians should drink it and frenzied thereby might follow and attack us. In the fourth wagon, Catherine took her trunk of wearing apparel, the contents of which she detailed lovingly in her account. These consisted of underclothing, a couple of blue-checked gingham dresses, several large, stout aprons for general wear, one light-colored for Sundays, a pink calico sunbonnet, and a white one intended for dress-up days. And then I just want to add this. My feminine vanity had also prompted me to include in this quasi-wedding trousseau a white cotton dress, a black silk manteau trimmed very fetchingly with velvet bands and fringe, also a lace scuttle-shaped bonnet having a wreath of tiny pink rosebuds, and on the side of the crown nestled a cluster of the same flowers. Most of that was probably thrown over the side, right, within weeks of yeah. their departure from uh, Iowa. For sure. Absolutely, for sure. You know, um, it, yeah, for sure. They w probably ended up with maybe, if they were lucky, half of that, and the rest would just have been, you know, cash by the side of the road. But it was that, as you say, it's that, it's the kind of, um, you know, I suppose there is, I suppose that is an advantage just in life in general. If you don't know, if you don't know that you can't do something, right. you know, it, that's right. when you go ahead and do it. And I think many of the people, particularly these m more middle class women who, you know, she left, it wasn't, she wasn't fleeing. I think that there had been a quite a major depression in the East that a lot of people were suffering economically from, from that. But, you know, she was, they may have been slightly less well off than before, but they were not, they were not, they weren't on the breadline. You know, this was a middle class family. Look at the servants that they, they were thinking of taking with them, who incidentally, after one day on the road, their cook went, mm -mm, no, this is not for me. And she absconded. So, so Catherine ended up doing the cooking. This is extraordinary. She said, I, I, I said that I would do the cooking. She was the only woman on, on, within their family group, which I think was a husband and a, and two brothers-in-law or something like that. She had never made so much as a cup of coffee for herself before she set mm. out on the trip. And she ended up having to do all the, you know, cooking for four people along, along the way. Completely, completely and totally inexperienced. And I love that story because, I mean, often it went very badly wrong and people died and starved and, you know, people ended up in a in a very poor state or they died of disease. In fact, the year that mm. Catherine went was 1849, which is the year of a big cholera epidemic, which ripped through these emigrant trails and killed large numbers of people. Catherine Horn and her family, amazingly, it didn't, it didn't affect them at all. But, um, but you know, you... You, 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 people really kind of rose to the occasion. Somebody asked me once, so what, you know, what were the qualities that the women would need to have to be able to, mm -hmm. to be able to, you know, manage this, you know, it was two from the Missouri um, River to the coast. It was 
nearly two and a half thousand miles, depending on the route that you went. Wow. It was a very long way, and you were probably walking most of it. Uh, I mean, over with incredible um, weather conditions, awful weather conditions, boiling hot, awful dust storms, flash floods, hailstones in July. I mean, you name it. Diseases for a lot of the married women, you know, the pregnancies and childbirths along the way were a very, very a major source of uh, danger, um, a danger and death. Um, but it so... I don't think they, they. It's not the qualities that they had when they left. It's just the 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 fact that they they rose to the occasion and it elicited great resilience in women who otherwise, you know, if they hadn't done that, they they would never have known what they were. They would never have known what they were capable of. And I would would also add that a lot of them did die. Um, right. But the ones who the ones who who survived it as Catherine Horn did, you know, they, it must have completely changed them. They must have, I think that's why Western women, you know, were later on to become so politically active mm-hmm. and so forth. Because, you know, if you've survived a journey like that, you want to, you know, you, you are a person of substance, I think, don't you? You'll become a person of substance. Mm. But but the other uh, thing I think of is even when the even if they endured and survived the journey, it wasn't like when they got to the quote unquote promised land that all was going to be easy. I mean, making a life and a homestead out on the frontier was just going to be drudgery and difficulty every yeah. single day. Yes. 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 It w- was, and if they. If they were, you know, had decided to go to, uh, you know, because of the mining opportunities, you know, people who went for, during the uh, well after the during the gold rush because they thought they were going to get rich quick. Well, guess what? You know, none of them really did. Um, I think, I think it was phenomenally tough. Um, I I really do, and and of course, you know, yeah. Exactly as you say, the the journey was just the preliminary to to something <laughs> to something much bigger than that. And, and getting there, are, there was the end of the beginning. Yeah, right? that was the kind of almost, almost not quite the easy bit, but um, you know, then it was a whole different a different stage when they when they got there. And there are some, you know, some you know some women went mad. Um, there are. There's one. In fact, it was Ketera, Ketera Belknap who describes one woman just completely losing it, and I'm quite sure she wasn't mm. on her own. I think it was at the moment when the when this news came about the so-called Whitman massacre, uh, mm. and this woman just said to her husband she wanted to turn around and go back, and he said no, and so she. Yeah, she she picked up a stone and she you know knocked her brains out of her uh, of mm. her uh, one of her children. Uh, um, you know, mm. so she really did go. Um, she really did go mad. It just it it sort of de- deranged her because it was it was extraordinarily tough. So the ones who survived it and did manage to create their homesteads and did manage to. You know, build farms and settle and and keep their some of at least some of their children alive. You know, it was an amazing, 
it was an amazing achievement. But, you know, I always have in my mind, you know, the sort of unquantifiable human cost to, to mm-hmm. all of this, which was what, um, which was the price paid by the, by the Native American tribes. Um, the book is dedicated to your granddaughter, Eva, and yes. it has turned out, I think it sounds like with some surprise of your own to be the most important book out of all of them that you've written to you. Yes. Why? Yes. Why I have a very, very, um, it has a very special place. You know, this is my 10th book. Uh, and it's my wow. fourth book of women. Yes, <laughs> my fourth book of wi- women's history. And I've made something of a specialty of, you know, as I was saying earlier, of trying to, uh, you know, g- grasp the women's stories that have been forgotten or, or, or obliterated or kind of brushed under the carpet in some way. And it, it, I'm glad that this was the one that I happened to write the last because it took everything I've learnt over a whole lifetime of writing I've been writing for nearly 40 years now Uh, it took everything it took the apprenticeship of all those other books and I write by the way write fiction as well as non-fiction and that was very helpful to me because I wanted to write it like a be very aware of the of the stories there and make it read you know, I want this to be a book that people will want to pick up and read to the end because there's a there's an overriding arch of narrative to kind of pull people along. But I think it's because it was these very, very intense stories. And I was very aware of the fact that I, you know, these are people's personal, uh, you know, Ketra Belknap's journal that she wrote she didn't know that 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 was going to be published when after she was dead you know this was a private document that she wrote for her own satisfaction and I'm very aware I mean often people did write write it later on and they obviously knew it was going to be published so that's kind of fair enough they they were offering it up for the you know for creative commons collective you know for the sort of collective uh you know interest of people but I'm very aware of being like a custodian of these women's stories and I, I of the native all, all of them so the Native American stories you know Native American women who told their stories the, the white women who went the, the African American women who went uh, I tell some stories of, of, of you know um, Mexican and uh, Chinese women and I'm just I feel that I'm the custodian of their tales and I need needed to tell these stories as truthfully as I was able to do. And I think they're often, you know, they're often life and death stories. You know, one of one of them was a woman called Virginia Reed, who was a young girl who survived the Donna Reed, you know, the the, the, the encampment that they made in the in the mountains and half of them had to eat the dead bodies of their family and friends in order to survive. You know, they're really, really intense stories. And so to tell them truthfully and to kind of honour honour them all was what I had in the back of my mind. So I felt this very powerful connection. You know, I lived with these women, effectively lived Mm, with them for mm -hmm. the the many years. It took me a year to research and and about a year and a half to write. And it was during lockdown, by the way. So so it was it was all the more intense for that, because that was really all I did for a year, for the Mm -hmm. year and a half of the year and a half that it took to write was to really intensively focus on these stories and to try to figure out how to get them all how to connect them together and how to tell them 
you can't tell all the stories in all their detail. So I needed to making decisions all the time as to which bits to include and which bits not to include, but always to try to honour honour the, the you know the legacy that these women have left and they are and they were extraordinary all of them were extraordinary no matter where they came from and no matter how they what their experiences were they were all extraordinary people katie hickman's book is titled Bravehearted: the women of the american west and she joined us today from london katie thank you thank you very much it's been such a pleasure thank you for having me